Well, is it me or do kids ask a lot of questions? Amen. All right, yeah, amen, right? Uh, my goodness, um, we're, actually, we're actually beginning to move a little bit out of that phase of child rearing, all right? Some of you are still in the midst of it, in the thick of it. Some of you have been out of it for a long time, and you're just like, oh man, I remember those days, but it does seem to me that uh, kids ask a lot of questions, and actually the questions over time, what I've started to notice is that they just get more difficult and complex to answer, right? Um, For instance, like about a week and a half ago, this was the conversation around the little breakfast nook that we have. Um, If humans are made in the image of God and God cannot sin, why can humans sin? I'm like, uh, eat your Cheerios, right? Yeah. (laughs) So, so... It's been funny, like, a few years back, um, I've been ta- I was talking to my former congregation that I used to be a part of that God had recently been using my then three-year-old to help me think at a deeper level about a myriad of things, okay? And so a typical night back in the day, probably seven years ago, would sound something like this. It was the bedtime routine, and I, I actually recorded this conversation um, a while back, um, but here it is, like putting the kids to bed. What is electricity, okay? What do trees do, all right? Like, I don't know, all right? What is glass, you know? I'm trying to, like, scratch my head. I don't know. Is it an element? Is it a raw material? I don't know. Um, we put glass, or we put milk in a glass. You're right. We do, don't we? If it gets stuck in my blanket, I take it out? No, because it's sharp, right? Why is glass sharp? Oh, because it's pointy. Am I a boy? Yes. Why? Well, that's how God made you. Is Eliana, my friend, a boy? No. Why? Because that's how God made her. Um, The questions would just kind of like flow like the current of Niagara Falls at the peak of like the spring thaw, right? It just question, question, question. It was like a clip of questions would be fully loaded and ready to be fired, and sometimes I'd get a little restless, and so I'd firmly say something like, okay, buddy, um, it's time to get some sleep now, and you know what came next, right? Why? (laughs) Because it's late. Why is it late? Because it's an hour past your bedtime, and you need to get some sleep so you'll feel good tomorrow. Well, why do we feel good if we get sleep? Because I said so, right? <laughs> right? So, so that's it, right? Um, these questions, whether they were significant or insignificant, they forced me to think deep about what I believed. And Albert Einstein once said this, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, then you don't understand it yourself. And so this book that we're about to preach from is full of questions, It is just full of questions. The first time I ever read through the gospel of Mark in one sitting, it was my senior year in high school. I'd become a Christian my junior in high school, and I wanted to learn more about Jesus. And so um, I I asked a youth pastor that was in town. It wasn't the youth ministry that I went to, but another youth pastor said, how, how do I get to know more about Jesus? He said, well, read through the gospels. And so you know, I looked at Matthew, Matthew's 27 chapters long, Mark is 16 chapters, Luke is 24, John's 21. I was like, hmm, which one am I going to go for, right? The one that's only 16 chapters, which one am I going to pick? And I picked the Gospel of Mark, and it was a Saturday afternoon, unprompted by anything other than my desire to get to know who Jesus was more, and I 
went to this youth pastor's office and I sat on his couch and I opened up my Bible to the Gospel of Mark and I read through it in one sitting. I used to think that the Gospel of Mark, in comparison to the other Gospel accounts, was like watching a black and white film on a tube TV, while the other Gospel accounts were more complete with Dolby Digital surround sound, full high-def color on 4K resolution. The Gospel of Mark is action-packed, but it lacks a lot of dialogue, it lacks a lot of detail. And because of this apparent lack of intricacies, in my mind, the narrative wasn't as compelling as Matthew, Luke, or John. And although it's the shortened account, it's exhausting to get through. If you've ever read through it, you recognize that everything happens immediately. That word appears 40 times in the Gospel. It's like Jesus... And his disciples are spokespeople for the Energizer batteries, right? They just keep going, going, going. It's like immediately this happened, immediately this happened, immediately. And you're like, even though it's only 16 chapters, you get exhausted reading it. You, you get tired reading it. But over time, and especially over the last few months as I've reread and listened to this narrative over and over again, I've come to understand that Mark isn't a black and white movie. Rather, it's a silent movie where the dialogue is transmitted through muted gestures and vivid mime expressions and title cards that are held up by the characters themselves and the the narrator. The entire narrative is shrouded in mystery and intrigue. It's full of riddles and hidden meanings and secret plots and ultimately questions. And in the center of the story, there's the key question. Mark 8, 29 says this, and he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That same question follows us to this day. It honestly, it will shadow us like it did the disciples or the religious leaders or the weeping women at the end of the narrative. It looms large in our minds as it did the first century audience. And so after the contents of this book is presented and delivered, it demands us to answer that question. Who was Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Who do you say that he is? That's that's the question. Amid all the questions we'll see here, that's the massive question. Who do you say that I am? And so... This is kind of the kickoff week. We learned about John Mark, the author, last week, and this week we're just going to look at some major themes of the narrative, themes to be aware of. And one of the first things that you need to recognize is that the Gospel of Mark presents the most human form of Jesus. The humanity of Jesus is on display all throughout the duration of the Gospel of Mark. Mark presents the most human and down-to-earth portrait of Jesus in the Scriptures, Jesus expresses, listen to this, if you're a human, and hopefully you are here, listen to how Jesus identifies and recognizes what you're going through. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus expresses the full range of human emotions, including compassion, indignation, grief, amazement, anger, love. Get this, he experiences extreme anxiety But he perseveres through that by trusting in God. Jesus' knowledge is also limited as he expresses ignorance concerning the time of his return. 
And his miracle-working powers are limited and contingent on the faith of those whom he healed. Jesus is presented as a man, as a person who you and I can relate to in the Gospel of Mark. More so than Matthew, more so than Luke, more so than John. Jesus, in fact, refers to himself as the Son of Man 14 times in the book. In the second half of the narrative, as it races toward the cross of Christ, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man 12 times in eight chapters. He's like, get this, I'm, I'm the Son of Man, Son of Man. His humanity is on display as well as the, profo- the prophetic passages of Daniel. We'll get to that later on. But there's a major shift that happens in chapter 8, and that shift introduces another major theme to look for in the gospel. And I love this. This is a gospel of irony, mystery, and questions. You're going to see so many ironic things happen. So many mysteries that are concealed and so many questions that just swirl about the people's minds. It reminds me of Winston Churchill's radio address in 1939. It's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma, right? When you read through the Gospel of Mark, you're like, what is going on? How do people not get this? If you want a fascinating study, sit down with the Gospel of Mark with a pen and paper and begin to chart throughout the whole narrative people's questions about Jesus. Everyone is puzzled as to who this man really is. They don't get it. Questions actually just dominate the landscape. It's like trying to navigate a minefield. You don't get very far to any, into any chapter before you step on something that was intentionally placed there by Mark to blow up what you had previously thought about the Messiah. I did this. You can see my papers. I printed out the Gospel of Mark, and I just circled all the question marks. They're all over the place. And often, throughout the narrative, you're going to see this. People who encounter Jesus are left scratching their heads. They just, they just can't wrap their mind around this guy. And I love this. I love this. The moment we begin to define God by smaller thoughts of him, is the moment that we actually shove him into a box that he's not meant to be in or he's not able to fit in itself. People that encounter the Jesus of the Gospel of Mark think that they can just kind of shove him down like you would a jack-in-a-box toy. They try to fit them into their preconceived ideas about the Messiah and the questions in Mark's Gospel act like a faulty trigger mechanism. He just kind of keeps popping up and surprising and shocking people left and right. And so this is, you can see this all over. Who is this? Who is this? People are always asking that question. Which is a masterful way in which Mark is constructing his account of who Jesus is. He is trying to make his first century audience wrestle with the reality of who Jesus really is because he definitely isn't who they expected him to be. Some of you, this isn't in the script, but some of you have grown up in a religious society all your life and you have this preconceived idea about who Jesus was and the gospel of Mark is gonna grab you and say, let's think about what you believe already. Let's see if it squares with the scriptures. 
So if, and as I say with all pastoral authority as I can, when you read through the narrative in one sitting, please do that this week even, it will fascinate you. Take notice of how people responded to him. You don't get it when you just sit down and read a small section at a time, like a paragraph here, a paragraph there, even chapter by chapter. This was to be audibly transmitted. This was an oral presentation. That's how Mark designed it, that this, would be, this, this gospel would be carried out and spoken. And so I've been toying around with this idea. Maybe we need to have a table read session sometime where we just gather here and just sit and read through the entire narrative. It would take about an hour and 45 minutes to two hours, but I think it would be amazing. So stay tuned on that. But if you would do that this week, hopefully you will, <clears throat> you'll see that six times people are astonished. Seven times people are amazed. Four times people marvel <laughs> like their jaws just hit the ground at something that he either said or something that he did. And here's the thing, I love this, I love this. The irony of the story is that the audience, you and I, know from the very first verse of the book exactly who Jesus is. But no one else we meet in the narrative seems to know who he is except for the demons and the Roman centurion in chapter 15. So you and I are in on the secret. The demons know, the Roman centurions know, everybody else seems to be puzzled and confused. And it only takes 12 words from Mark's pen, seven in Greek, and we know who Jesus is. He says it, look at 1-1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're in, collectively in on the secret from the first seven words in Greek. He's the Son of God. We're in on the mystery. The mystery is not mysterious to us, the reader or the hearer. But as we keep going throughout the narrative, we see people struggling with not only knowing who Jesus was, they don't know, and they don't know what we know from the very first seven words of the narrative. It's amazing. So for instance, you get to chapter three and his own family thinks that he's out of his mind. Chapter four, the disciples say something like, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? The people that he grew up with in Mark chapter 6, they don't know who he is, and they take offense at him. The religious leaders of the community don't know who he is. The Pharisees actually plot to destroy him throughout the narrative. We see it in chapter 3, and we'll see it again in chapter 11. They're plotting to destroy this man whom they don't know who he is. And the word destroy is apolumi, which means to destroy or to render him useless. We don't know who you are, but you're a threat. We're going to render you useless. And so get this. They craft a deceptive, secretive plan, complete with the protection of the cover of night, and they use stealth-like secret signs to destroy him, and they hatch their plan in chapter 14, and then, of all things, they use a barrage of questions to destroy and ruin him. Like I said, questions are all over the place. So we get it in Mark chapter 14, verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is that these men testify against you? 
But he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him another question. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And we from chapter 1, verse 1 say, yes, he is. But they clearly don't know. And then Jesus plainly answers their question with the loaded with meaning two-word reply, ego ami, I am. It's like the ultimate mic drop heard around the world and down through the centuries. I am. He's, he's, he's equating himself with the great I am of Exodus 3. The ultimate mic drop. He answers the question plainly. I am. And what do they do? The irony of that. Once you get the truth, what do they do? And the high priest tore his garments. And then more questions. What further witnesses do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. Another question. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. So we the readers who from the first seven words of this book, we know who Jesus really is, the second person of the triune God. We just heard the religious leaders of Israel get the truth along with the entire nation as a whole say, we want to kill you, I am. We want to kill you, God. They condemned God and said that he deserved to die because they didn't get it. Talk about a rejection. So not only do the religious leaders, the ones who are supposed to know these things, reject Jesus, and they they don't know who he is, but neither do the Roman leaders. They say this, are you the king of the Jews? So not only the religious leaders of Israel, but the Roman leaders as well, they don't get, well, you say, well, what about Peter? What about Peter? Doesn't Peter know? Jesus asked him point blank, but who do you say that I am? To which, G, to which Peter replies, you are the Christ. And you're like, ding, 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 right answer. Peter got it. But here's the irony of that. Even though Peter gets the right answer, He's terribly mistaken about the role and the function of the anointed Messiah of God. In fact, he's so badly mistaken about this role that two verses later, Peter, after Peter makes his confession that Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, Jesus begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly to them, And two verses after Peter makes this wonderful confession, Peter takes Jesus aside, begins to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of the man, of man. And so consider the irony of this. Peter finally gets it right, but the whole role and the concept of who the Messiah was going to be was so skewed that he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. I thought you gave Peter the nickname The Rock in chapter 3, verse 16. Right? Well, by the end of the narrative, that rock crumbled three times and the cock crowed, right? You're like, surely Peter would get it. He's The Rock, right? Clearly didn't get it. 
So if we went to Village Books or You Catastrophe to look for the hardcover edition of the Gospel of Mark, I think we might find it in the nonfiction mystery section. This book is full of mysteries and secrets, super compelling. And in fact, one of the biggest theological themes of the book involves a mystery. And that is, what exactly is the true role of the Messiah? What, who is the Messiah? What's his role? What's he supposed to be doing? Think about this. If you've ever read through the gospel, you'll see it in other gospels as well. But if you're left scratching your head or wondered, have you ever been puzzled by the fact that Jesus kept trying to keep his secret identity, right? They're trying to keep his identity a secret. Like he would, he would heal people, and then he'd say, like, go, don't, don't go telling everybody. <laughs> Have you ever read those stories? Like, well, no, go tell everybody. Tell, like, show off, right? But he would heal people, and then he'd say, don't go telling everybody. And this happens in Mark again and again and again and again. And some people refer to this as the messianic secret. And there's a number of reasons why. We'll get to those as we preach through the narrative. There's a number of reasons why Jesus might be doing this, but the most compelling argument to me is that he wants to keep the role of the Messiah in its true and proper place. He wants to work to accomplish training his disciples, which would prove to be hard enough even without becoming a celebrity-type itinerant preacher. And so Jesus is determined to define his Messiahship on his own terms and in light of the cross instead of the cultural expectations of an earthly political liberator because he was coming to be the suffering servant. Like, it, it was so far beyond their preconceived ideas about a Messiah and they're shoving him down in this jack-in-the-box Messiah role and he just keeps popping out. He's like, nope, I'm coming to be a suffering servant. They have no category for that. Their perceptions of the Messiah and who he would be and what he would do are as different as night and day. Their concept of the Messiah was so broken, erroneous, misguided, and ultimately untrue, so Jesus commands people to not say who they think he is. Don't go telling everybody, <laughs> because everybody's mindset of who I am is so wrong, so if you say what you think, yeah. he wants to define his messiahship on his own terms. And you think about this, listen, listen, the kind response would be to obey the command of the one who healed you of whatever you're dealing with, but most people don't obey him. They just start going out and speaking freely about him, which actually makes it more extremely difficult for Jesus to move about freely. The characters make his hard job even harder. Talk about irony. You want to get this? Think about the irony of the story. It seems like the only entities that obey the commands of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, are demonic forces and nature itself. That's it. He, those that he healed, they didn't obey him. The disciples don't obey him, but the wind and the waves and the demons do. 
what an indictment. What an indictment on all of us. So fulfilling the true and the pure role of the Messiah was going to be difficult enough on its own and even more difficult because no one who should have obeyed him actually did. (laughs) And so the answer to the question, what is the true role of the Messiah, it's found in a key verse in chapter 10 where Jesus says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how he wanted to define his messiahship. Serve people, lay down his life as a ransom. Talk about irony. The Messiah, the Messiah had come to serve people by giving his life as a ransom. It doesn't get any more ironic than that. Why? Because most kings that we hear about or read about in history don't serve the people, the people serve him. And most assuredly, the king doesn't fall on his sword for his subservient subject of his kingdom. They lay down their life for his. Do you get that? Think about the rally cry of UK forces as they marched into battle on World War I. God save the subjects. No, God save the what? King. Well, the way that God would save the king in World War I is by the willingness of the soldiers to lay down their lives in order to carry out the king's commands. But here... According to Jesus, we have a king, Messiah, who's willing to serve us and lay down his life for us. And repeatedly throughout the gospel, people are, get this, afraid of him. What? Why would you be afraid of a king that did that? Maybe a normal king, yeah. But a king that's willing to serve us and lay down his life for us, you're scared of him? It's unbelievable. And yet, very sadly, believable when we look at our own lives. So we need to ask ourselves the question as you read through the Gospel of Mark. Why in the world is everybody in the Gospel of Mark afraid of Jesus? And if you trace the use of that word phabeo in the Gospel of Mark, it will bring you to the most compelling of introspective discoveries. The word appears 12 times in the book. We see it in chapter 4. The disciples were afraid when he calmed the wind of the waves. And they said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They're they're afraid. Chapter 5, Jesus performs an exorcism on a man who had a legion of demons. 2,000 pigs go running off an embankment and they drown in the sea. And it says the townspeople were afraid More so than that, it says that they begged Jesus to leave their region. (laughs) Also in chapter 5, Jesus noticed that Jairus is afraid because leaders of the synagogue came to him and said, don't bother the teacher because your daughter is dead. But Jesus says to him, he looks at him and he says, don't be afraid, just believe. And as I was preparing this message, I was like, who needs to hear that message today? With whatever you're facing, 
Jesus says to you, don't be afraid, just believe. Talk about a moment of connection between Mark and our souls, right? So who needs to hear that message today? Chapter 6, Jesus walks on water and the disciples were afraid. Chapter 9, Jesus tells them that the Messiah must suffer and die and the disciples were afraid. They were afraid to ask him about what he meant by that. Chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus walks ahead of the disciples to Jerusalem and it says those who followed were afraid. Following him yet afraid. (laughs) Chapter 11, the chief priests were afraid of Jesus because he had astonished the crowds with his teaching. And they said, we've never heard teaching like that before. Now these are professional religious teachers that studied Torah that did this and hold on, and like, we never heard anything like that before, and they were afraid. Others said, we've never seen power over nature like that before. Others said, we've never witnessed authority over the unseen angelic world before. Others said, we've never been more confounded by mysteries of the ancient prophecies like that before. Everyone's afraid. And finally, finally, the capstone discovery And the ultimate question that we all need to wrestle with is when the women go to the tomb to anoint the dead body of Jesus only to be greeted by an angel who tells them this, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Yes, he died, but he's risen and he's not here. Go see the place where they laid him, but go, listen, Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Jesus had told them this plainly in Mark 14, 28. As the Pharisees were hatching their secret co-op plan, he said, after I raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. But then the narrative ends in a very stunning fashion. Mark chapter 16, verse 8. So they're given this command to go tell the disciples, go tell Peter, go meet him in Galilee. Just like Jesus told you in Mark 14, 28. In verse 16, 8, it says this. And they went out, they fled the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid, period. And the narrative abruptly ends and you're like what there's got to be more and honestly if there was more we'll talk about the added ending to mark later the punch wouldn't land as hard traumas and ecstasis had seized them Jesus said he would do what he would do, and then he did what he did, and they are traumatized by it. And they jump out of their skin, they're beside themselves, an ecstatic amazement, but then they say nothing to anybody. Uden, Udeni. They said nothing to no one. Why? Because they were afraid. Period. 
the women's response to the news of the empty tomb and the summons to join a resurrected Messiah in Galilee where it all began, their response is in line with everybody else's response all throughout the gospel account. They are both amazed and afraid because of something that they had witnessed that was awe-inspiring. What could be more awe-inspiring than an empty tomb and an invitation to join in the sharing of that historical, world-altering reality? Go tell the disciples and go tell Peter the good news. And here's this, last point of irony. Ironically enough, for the first time in the narrative, first time, people are actually instructed to go tell the news of the accomplishments of the Messiah. Don't keep the messianic secret a secret anymore. Go and tell the disciples. And what do the women do? The text says that they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's where the narrative begins to reach out to each and every single one of us. Mark is going to reach out to us right now and throughout the duration of this narrative as you read it. He's reaching out to us to make a personal connection because Mark knows something about us, his readers. We, the audience, we've been clued in from the very beginning what this narrative is all about. It's about the gospel, the euangelion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That word euangelion means good news. Who in their right mind is afraid of good news? I was joking this week. It's like, you know, I got good news and bad news. What do you want to hear first, you know? Some people are like, just give me the bad news, right? Just I want to get it over so I can hear the good news or vice versa, whatever it might be. Who in their right mind is afraid of good news? Good news is something that we should share, that we should shout from the rooftops. And especially in our world today where major mainstream news sources predominantly report only bad news. But Mark says, look, you and I have the euangelion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We have good news, the best news to share with the world. And the question is, will you open up your mouth and audibly share it? Here's the question that we all need to personally answer. Jesus looks at each one of us in the eyes and says, who do you say that I am? Mark says, there's good news about me. Who do you say I am? And when we come up with the answer to that question, Mark is going to reach out across the centuries with his gospel account and the Holy Spirit is going to kind of tap on the door of your heart and say, I know you might be afraid, just like the women were. I know you might be afraid to speak up on these amazing, astonishing things, but in spite of your fear, will you go? Will you tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom? Will you? Will you? And so Mark opens up with this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes Malachi. We'll get to that next week. Talk about mysterious. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And all the country of Judea and in Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am worthy I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. God, I pray that as we set out on this uh, endeavor to study this gospel that has been so uh, incredibly recorded for us, inspired by your spirit, using the personality of our brother in Christ, John Mark, who we learned about last week, and also preserved throughout church history, and finding itself in the contents of the covers of these books that we hold and we read from that contain the word of God. That is the word of God. I pray that as we study this gospel this year, that you would be so kind to open up our eyes to answer the most important question, who do we say that he is? And then we'll be willing to stake our whole life on the answer to that question and live congruent lives based off of the answer to that question. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to move into... A time of response and communion.